Hello, my name is Peter Abiel, and welcome to the Robot Brains podcast, a show about AI and robots and the brilliant brains who make them. Today here with me is Fei-Fei Li. Fei-Fei's name has come up a lot already on our show, and for good reasons. She is the Sequoia Capital Professor of Computer Science at Stanford University, co-director of the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence, and the Vision and Learning Lab. As her long Wikipedia page says, she was the leading scientist and instigator of ImageNet, which ultimately helped vision systems and neural nets to break through out of academia and into industries all over the world. Pepe, so happy to have you here with me. Welcome. Thank you, Peter. It's uh, quite a pleasure and honor to be invited to this. I wanted to do this with you for a long time. <laughs> yeah, and I would say in many ways, I feel like I'm so lucky to finally have you on. In many ways, I feel you're overdue because actually, as you know, our episode one was one of your former students, Andre Karpathy. Episode two was one of your former students, Olga Rusakovsky. But now we're, you know, at the source of it all. So very exciting. You start with the best. <laughs> you're known for so many things at this point, including your now famous in their own right students and so forth. It didn't start out that way. As I understand it, I was, I was reading up on you and listening to talks from you and about you. Yeah, she didn't start as a Stanford professor. You started as working in a dry cleaner. Is that right? Yes. In Silicon Valley language, that would be my startup. <laughs> so, so yeah, when I was, I think, 19 year old, I just started at Princeton for college as a typical immigration family. My parents and I were, you know, needed to to find a way to survive. And given that, uh, you know, my parents didn't speak English and, and all the constraints, I pretty much decided that a cleaning shop, a cleaner, dry cleaner shop is the best way to go, especially it's a weekend business. And I can do a lot of heavy lifting in terms of running the business and running the shop. So that that's how it all started. That's so interesting. I like the notion of like a weekend business. You're just like studying at Princeton during the week, getting your homework done. I, I imagine you did your homework based on where you got by now. And then on the weekend, you're working at dry cleaners. I'm actually curious, if you look back at it, do you see any AI opportunities within the dry cleaning business? Absolutely, I didn't, Peter. I think looking back at it, so there was a running theme. My first job wasn't dry cleaning. My my first job was a Chinese restaurants. I was in the kitchen working uh-huh. and then I did some home cleaning and then I get into dry cleaning. I guess the running theme is that I didn't let that define me. I just thought that is a necessary part of an immigrant life. You know, you have to do what is necessary to survive and to make it in the society that was still new to me, to my family. But what really did define me, even as early as that time, was my love for science, especially at that time, physics. As you know, I majored in physics at Princeton. It's that imagination and audacity to ask such fundamental questions of our universe. That did define me. And I do remember carrying books that, you know, even in in the Chinese restaurant or even in the the dry cleaning shop, I would be reading those books. AI didn't come to that stage of my life yet. (laughs) 
How did that transition happen? You're an undergrad at Princeton studying physics. That happened in a very, very both serendipitous and maybe intentional way. So I was obsessed with physics. And in fact, I still feel I'm more of a physicist scientist than an engineer. We can talk about that. What's the difference? But I was really obsessed. So I was reading a lot of the books of the greatest 20th century physicists. You know, of course, starting with Einstein, he remained my favorite scientist of all time. And then Schrodinger, Roger Penrose had been my childhood hero, but he only got a Nobel Prize last year. I'm so happy. But I was at Hawking, of course, and I was reading their books and I noticed something I didn't expect. I noticed that Einstein, Schrodinger, Penrose, towards the later stage of their career, they asked more questions inwards than outwards. Mm. Outwards is about the boundary of the universe, the beginning of time, the substructure of atoms. But inwards is about who are we? What is life? In fact, Schrodinger has this book called What is Life? And Perros talk about minds. And that really hit a chord in me. Somehow I follow their lead in a way. I feel like they almost feel like they're transitioning into those questions was the path I want to take. So I started to be very fascinated by the inward question instead of the outward question. And the inward question of what is life, what define life, start to capture me around the middle of college. And then trained as a physics student, if you're curious about something, you're driven to ask the most fundamental questions. And for me, the most fundamental question of life, especially life related to humans, is intelligence. So I took a very purposeful dive into the world of neuroscience. I interned a couple of internships in neuroscience, and I realized, wow, I really, really love the question of intelligence. And that's when I pivoted from hardcore atomic world physics to the pursuit of intelligence. That's so interesting that the physicist books, they write towards the end of their career, when they converge on what they then find interesting, you jump right into it. I will say a lot of what drove me into AI I was also thinking about human intelligence, but I kind of quickly gave up on trying to understand neuroscience. And I thought engineering a solution might be an easier way than to try to measure things in the brain. But as I understand it, you continue to study neuroscience still till today, but especially then, it sounds like it. So how did that lead into your PhD? So this is where, Peter, we can dive in. Are we building airplane or are we building birds, right? I, I think both the right. scientific and engineering mindsets are so important for a field as deep and vast as AI. Personally, I got in because I wanted to traverse the boundary between how brain works as well as how artificial brain can work. And I think there is a little bit of leftover physics romance in me. There ought to be some unified theory, whether it's a silicon-based brain or a uh, organic carbon-based brain. 
till today, I would love to see some unifying principles. So I didn't have that strong boundary between human intelligence and machine intelligence. And I chose my PhD based on if I can set up an interdisciplinary graduate school program for myself, as you were too, we had several choices, but what really worked was Caltech for me. I got to study under Christoph Koch, who was also a physicist turned into a computational neuroscientist. And then Pietro Perona, who is an engineer turned into an AI tech researcher. And studying with them in that combination was really the best of both worlds for me. I was able to continue the cognitive and computational neuroscience work that I always loved. But it was really in Pietro's lab that I got to learn about what AI is about, what computer vision was about, and what machine learning as a mathematical tool can do. And I have to say, I just loved it so much. I distinctively remember how much I felt in grad school, this field is the love of my life kind of feeling. I wonder if you had that, but, but once you have that, you that's it, right? You, you don't let go that feeling. I think it's very interesting because it's the feeling you're talking about. I, I think, I mean, I don't know exactly what you're feeling, of course, but I get a similar sense of you work on something that can be so foundational and so fundamental that it, it's hard not to be excited about it pretty much every moment of every day because it's just, yeah. well, there's this possibility to really understand something deep, to be able to build really impactful, powerful new technologies that are just of a different generation than what we've built so far. And it's it's hard to not be intrigued at all times, at least for yeah. me. Yeah, totally. <laughs> that feeling, I guess it's not too dissimilar to kids discovering a new playground. There's endless surprises and treasures to dig out of. Now, what I think is really interesting if we look at the evolution of AI and, and a lot of the things we've actually discussed in the podcast in past episodes, and I'm sure we'll discuss in the future, is that there is an obvious major inflection point in the evolution of AI, recent inflection point in 2012. In 2012, there is the ImageNet slash AlexNet moment where deep neural networks break through. People were working on them modestly people who believed in their potential working on them, but they hadn't shown their true capabilities till, till that moment. And, and that's when people, everybody woke up to the power of neural networks, not just the early believers. And of course, I mean, you're central to the story as central as it gets, because you came up with the ImageNet dataset, ImageNet competition, which enabled training on this large vision dataset. But of course, you didn't do that in 2012. That started earlier. So I'm really curious, what is the origins for you personally of building ImageNet several years before that breakthrough actually happened, right? It started in grad school. You know, in grad school, one thing that's fascinating about my the lab I worked at, which is the Pietro Perona's lab, was that it was one of the very first labs in the world of computer vision that's working on this seemingly impossible question of object recognition, because at that time, the world of computer vision was focusing more on stereo vision and epipolar geometry. And we were working on this seemingly crazy topic of how do you 
teach a machine to recognize everyday objects. And the reason we wanted to work on it for Pietro and for me is actually a deeply neuroscience reason. Because if you look at the body of cognitive neuroscience and neurophysiology literature coming out of the 80s and 90s and early 21st century, there is a moment in that field where it's showing us that the human brain and human mind is so wired evolutionarily to perform object recognition functionality in a profoundly robust way. And that is, to this day, what I would consider the kind of North Stars that really guided a small group of computer vision scientists at that time, very small, like probably single-digit number, Pietro being a central figure. And so my PhD was surrounding that object recognition problem. And on top of that, I think you and I belong to more or less the same generation of PhD students that we embraced machine learning. It was a new-ish field, right? Combining statistical modeling and computer science. And we are looking at profound mathematical issues like generalization and how we can enable that kind of human-capable generalization into machines. And towards the end of my PhD, my biggest frustration in the area of object recognition is that we were hand-tuning mostly Bayesian, Bayesian models in a very painful way because we don't know how to learn most of the pixel world. So we hand-engineered features to start with to make sure it captured the corners, the slanted lines, the, you know, the oriented edges, the different shapes. That was one thing that we were hand engineering. The second thing we're hand engineering is the infinite combinatorial possibilities of combining these features in order to express an object, right? You can think a cat that how many, you know, if you just pick, let's say 10, features that are, you know, parts of a ear, parts of a face, parts of a body, and start thinking about how we assemble them. That's infinite. And we were trying to use not very expressive models, mostly Gaussian models, to try to assemble together a generalizable model. And that was just very painful. That was the end of my PhD, even though we made some progress. So then I transitioned into assistant professor 2005. It dawned on me that one of the most important concepts in machine learning is to avoid overfitting, to enable generalization. They come as a couple. If we want to avoid overfitting and to enable good generalization, we need powerful models. But mathematically, if we need powerful models, we need enough data. Because if we don't have enough data, you, I mean, Peter, you know that, we will overfit the models very easily. So I, I turned my attention to data following that line of thinking and realized there aren't that many data set out there. In computer vision at that time, there was the Caltech 101, which was part of my dissertation, and then the Pascal VOC, all in the realm of 10,000, 20,000 number of images. That is tiny compared to the pixel possibilities. And in the world of machine learning, I don't know if you even remember the UC Irvine data set. Oh, yeah. Remember how tiny that data set is? So mm -hmm. 
either if you look at the world of NeurIPS, it had an older name at that time, or the world of computer vision, we're working on tiny data sets. So around 2006, I pretty much told my student that we've got to reset this thinking and create a data set that is orders of magnitude different, not for the sake of size, but for the sake of rebooting machine learning. And that was really the beginning. How the ImageNet come about was a trip to Princeton. I was in the middle of transitioning from University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, back to my alma mater at Princeton. And I think one of those recruiting trips, they knew I liked psychology. They actually were giving me a courtesy appointment at psychology department. And I got to talk to a couple of linguists. And one of them was a professor called Christiane Felbum. I actually, at the beginning, didn't know why I was talking to linguists coming from the world of computer vision. It turned out they were the center of the WordNet world. They learned I was giving semantic labels to objects, you know, in object recognition, and they wanted to see if there's a link between language and vision. That was really ahead of thinking. I wasn't thinking deeply about language at all at that time. But I heard about WordNet was a moment I felt, oh my God, this is the backbone of the data set that I will be making. The backbone is all the nouns. At that time, I thought it was 80,000. 80,000 nouns in WordNet. We will create a ginormous data set based on this backbone. I did have that belief it will change the world of computer vision and machine learning because of the scale and the definitive North Star we can put forward for the field. So that was really the beginning of when ImageNet idea came about was 2006 in a trip before I moved to Princeton. Wow, I didn't know that story. That's really interesting, Fefe. Now I'm curious, you want to build a data set, an image recognition data set with 80,000 possible labels, apparently the number of words in, in WordNet. Number of nouns. Number of nouns, sorry. Number of nouns in, in WordNet. And compare that to existing data sets. I mean, Caltech 101 had 101 classification labels. That's very different from 80,000. So clearly it's going to be a different kind of scale effort to pull this off. How do you do it? Sometimes I look back and I think if I knew all the problem we would run into, I don't know if we would have started in you know, a way it's some naivety that drove us into it. So I had this naive idea that we will download. That can be done. We download from the internet uh, following search engine leads, but we will hire undergrad to clean. I don't know why that was my plan. I thought that undergrads are abundant and great. So we started that journey. We had to download literally billions of images because compared to today's search engine, that time search engine quality was way worse. Even if you type in the word German Shepherd, the quality of images were really not great. On top of that, the most important thing about a training data set is diversity and variability. So you cannot just type in German Shepherd. We had to do automatic word completion like German Shepherd playing Frisbee, German Shepherd by a beach, you know, to, to really make the 
search result rich, but it's also extremely noisy. So I thought that at the cost of $10 per hour, I will hire hundreds and hundreds of undergrads. By that time, I was at Princeton, Princeton Lab and just label it. Frankly, I have that naivety, I think, because Caltech 101, that's what I did myself. <laughs> so I thought maybe, but I forgot the scale, you know. Caltech won 10,000 pictures that was manageable, but I totally didn't think deeply about the scale. But after, you know, a few months, it was just impossible. My PhD student at that time, who's working on an image that is called Jia Dan, who is now a professor in AI, and he was just getting less and less happy about this whole situation. So we pivoted drastically to the other end of the extreme pivoted to machine selection. We decided humans are impossible. Let's just use machines to select. I don't know if you remember, Peter, there's a whole few years where topic models, directionally allocation models were really, really prominent. And we thought that we'll use that kind of, it's basically a clustering algorithm to select good clusters of say German shepherds. But Two things dawned on us. One, machines are not perfect. So mm -hmm. you'll still deal with noise. But we thought, okay, that's doable. We can just use humans to do some refined labeling. But mm -hmm. the other thing that dawned on us, again, I felt I was just slow. It should have dawned on me before we got started. Was the philosophical problem of if you use machines to select, you're already biased for machines and biased towards that algorithm you used mm -hmm. to select the pictures in the first place. And that was not what we wanted. We still believe we have to establish a North Star, a North Star of human quality object mm -hmm. recognition. So we got rid of the two extreme. You know, we couldn't do the undergrads. We couldn't do the machines. And then we were stuck till a master's student coming from Stanford at that time at Princeton mentioned to me in the hallway, early 2007, I still remember, he said, Faith, have you heard of a thing called Amazon Mechanical Turk? And I did not. I really didn't. And I went back that afternoon or evening at home. I logged on. And that moment, I knew image that would happen. When I look at Amazon Mechanical Turk, the online workers market, where you can deploy massive amount of tasks and pay people worldwide to do it. I've never thought of such a thing. I've never seen such a thing. And that platform of scale solved our problem. It was still a two and a half year journey after that moment. You know, a lot of engineering. We were the early adapters of AMT and all that. But it was just an incredible technological moment that I still remember the feeling of, oh my God, I had no idea this existed. And this is the path towards completing ImageNet. And I think it's so interesting, the path you described, really hard path to follow then and to get it done. And then today, of course, Amazon Mechanical Turk is this massive, massive business. And even just labeling images in itself, there's multiple companies, including multi-billion dollar companies, where exactly. all they do effectively is 
you can ship your images and they'll find somebody to annotate them for you. What you did there has become a many billion dollar business for many, many companies throughout the world, which is just so interesting. And at the first time around, it's so hard to do. Now it's completely commercialized 14, 15 years later. Yeah, it, it is great to see that. You know, of course, we didn't expect that, <laughs> but it's an incredible convergence of history of technology to get us from there to here. Now, one thing I find really interesting in the history of ImageNet is, of course, and most people know really well as the AlexNet moment, ImageNet competition in 2012. And I think it's so interesting because it completely changed what everybody is working on because everybody switched to deep learning after that result, the breakthrough in image recognition. I'm kind of curious from your perspective, though, you're running ImageNet competition probably for the third or fourth third year, third time. Yeah. How is it? I mean, in the first and second year, there was no such event that changed the world of AI, obviously. How was that for you? How did that play out? 2009 was our CVPR poster paper releasing image that we immediately got a lot of criticism. Actually, I got more criticism than, than any endorsement. Most of the criticism were, we haven't even solved a handful of object recognition. Why are you releasing a data set of 22,000 categories? Are you just comparing bigger is better? What is the intellectual depth of this? Who cares about labeled images? So there was a lot of criticism. Luckily, I guess we didn't really care in a sense. We knew why ImageNet was made. We knew the North Star of computer vision. One of them was what ImageNet would be, you know, driving towards. But we did want to democratize this Right. As you know, in the world of research, we want to make impactful work through democratizing our ideas. And we learned a page from Pascal VOC challenge team that running a well curated challenge would be a good way to democratize this idea. And I'm really grateful that the Pascal team actually was really, they understood us. They were very kind to us. They said, okay, this is a lot of work, which was true. You might not know what you're doing. Why don't you do a track, a teaser challenge with us in 2010 to just get your feet wet? And I was happy to do that. I was very grateful that Pascal even embraced us. 2010, not much happened. The number of participants were small. And it was just a refined SVM model, support vector machine model that won that year's challenge. And then 2011 was even fewer people. So 2011, we decided we could do a standalone challenge, but it was like single digit number of teams participated. <laughs> you know, the biggest problem for everybody at that time was the size of compute. You cannot even fit data into memory. It wasn't even algorithm necessarily. It was size of compute. And we heard that. One thing I learned, I'm trying to attribute who taught me that, but I learned in grad school, Peter, was to believe in Moore's law. I learned that in the world of computer, especially machine learning research, believe the trend of smaller and smaller memory and faster and faster compute. In a way, I guess I learned a lot to outsmart Moore's law. 
go along the trajectory of Moore's law. So I remember telling myself, it's okay, it'll take a few years. I didn't think it would take only 12 months in 2011. It'll take a few years, but memories are getting larger and chips are getting faster. And of course, 2012, I was trying to reconstruct if I, I think I either received a phone call or an email late at night after the image that challenge was released and the results came in from my student, Oga, and said, we have an unbelievable entry that won this year's challenge. And the most shocking thing about that entry was that it was a known algorithm for almost 30 years. It was convolutional neural network. That was my first class in the grad school was neural network. We were all in the world of Bayesian modeling, BayesNet. I did not expect convolutional neural network as a fairly old model in the world of machine learning to win that challenge. And we immediately, I remember I was still on maternity leave, but I was just too excited. I did two things. One is, of course, immediately try to understand what's new. At that time, I remember the dropouts and the ReLU more or less two innovation. Of course, GPU was a big deal, right? There were two, mm-hmm. Alex used two GPUs. <laughs> <laughs> that was one thing. The second thing is that it was very late, but I had to book a ticket to Florence, Italy, because the workshop for Image that Challenge would be held at ICCV Florence, Italy, and I was not going to go. I thought I would just stay home still on my maternity leave, but it was so significant. I had no doubt it was a historical result that I had to go. And uh, thanks to the late um, outcome, I I had to squeeze in the middle seat. (laughs) I was really unhappy about that. I remembered I was in the air back and forth longer than I was in Florence, Italy. But it was a very, very memorable moment in all of our career. Yeah, I can only imagine. I was not attending computer vision conferences at the time. I mean, the fields were further apart. If you were yes. computer vision versus natural language processing versus machine learning, even which had participated in these, but was still separate. Robotics was separate, even though today it's so weird to imagine that those were all separate because the tools are so shared. Back then, they were quite distinct communities. But despite not being in the computer vision community, The word propagated very, very quickly (laughs) that something happened there. What did you hear? Well, for me, it was Jitendra Malik, my colleague at Berkeley, of course, telling the story. He was one of the people, maybe a probably deep person who challenged Jeff Hinton to try out neural networks on ImageNet over a phone call. So that's how Jitendra tells the story is that, you know, Jeff says, I hear you talking negatively about neural nets and and so forth. And Jitendra says, yes, I am. (laughs) And Jeff says, well, well, we'll convince you. <laughs> and Jatendra says, well, the one option, of course, Jatendra tells the story better, but one option is if you show convincing results on ImageNet, because that would be a real data set, like a real result. If you can do well on ImageNet, you've shown something on real world data, hard problem. So Jatendra also played an outsized role in the creation of ImageNet. He publicly talks about this. That's why I can share it. So, so you know Jatendra is my academic grandfather. I think his research style has influenced me deeply because he really was the first person who combined that cognitive neuroscience psychology thinking into computer vision. 
which Pietro also embodied and I inherited deeply because of Jotendra. And also throughout my career, he's been just one of the most supportive. But when he heard in 2007 at CVPR, I was a really insecure assistant professor, worried about tenure, funding, students, as we all have been through. I told him about I was making ImageNet. Jitendra said, hmm, I'm not so sure this is good for your tenure. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think had a good reason. He said that it's too much. What I was planning was really too much of a jump for the field. Tens of thousands of categories and tens of millions of images was just not what the field was there for. You know, like we said, right, even memories, even till 2011, you cannot find a chip powerful enough to fit the, the data into memory, let alone doing computing. I don't know why, I guess I, I believed it so much and was naive enough that I didn't go. It's probably the only advice Jatendra gave me that I didn't follow. <laughs> He's been so supportive and we still joke about that moment till today. <laughs> As always, we will also be posting a video recording of this conversation onto our YouTube channel and our website, therobotbrains.ai. We'd love for you to subscribe to our channel to make sure that you get an alert whenever we post a new episode. You can email us at podcast at therobotbrains.ai with any thoughts about the show, suggestions for future guests, or with any questions you may have. You can show your support for the podcast by giving us a review on whichever platforms you listen to our show. And please consider sharing our episodes with anyone you think would like to learn more about AI, robotics, and the people bringing them into the real world. Now, one of the things that I think is really intriguing about what's been happening in your career, Fefe, is vision and more generally machine learning really took off after the ImageNet, AlexNet moment. But what it has also meant is that the application spectrum has grown. It used to be an academic endeavor. It's become a very, well, industrial endeavor just as much as academic, you can build real applications, real things that can do something in the real world. One of the things that is, I think, really amazing that's happened in your career recently is you were elected to the National Academy of Medicine. How did that happen? I mean, you're an AI researcher, computer vision researcher, and you're in the National Academy of Medicine. Yeah. Well, first of all, I believe there are other computer scientists in the Academy of Medicine. So Peter, there's, you know, people talk about lives on resumes, but there is a, a major part of my life that's not on my resume, but I would say that define who I am more than anything that's on my resume is taking care of my mom. She's chronically very, very ill, mostly due to a half a century long severe cardiovascular heart problem ever since my teenagehood, especially coming to this country as the only person who speak English, eventually who spoke English in the family, I've taken care of her not only on a daily basis, but also on the basis of her healthcare manager. You know, I've been to every single ER, every single surgery, every single ICU, every single hospital stay. I'm also her only child. 
it's been more than 30 years that my life is defined by everything that is related to my mom's health. I remember my final exams at Princeton were done by her surgery bed. I remember I had to postpone my PhD thesis defense because of her severe situation. I had to select my jobs based on where, for example, Northern California is a good location for a person with severe heart disease. All this is a long way of saying that healthcare and medicine has been in my life so deeply that right around, Alex, that 2012, that deep learning takeoff happened, I woke up with this really strong belief that the healthcare industry will be impacted by AI. And the reason I had that belief was concurrent with the deep learning revolution. There was another revolution that's closer to your world, Peter, is the revolution of self-driving cars. Around that time, coming out of Stanford, self-driving car was becoming commercial and companies from Google to many other companies was really starting to industrialize that whole concept. And what is the technological core of self-driving car is really in the moment contextual understanding of what's going on with people and traffic and then the data analytic to drive better decision making. As someone who lives through the system of healthcare, This is exactly the same situation. Complex, multi-human workflow situation that is all geared towards better decision-making for patients. So I understood that industry so well, I wanted to do something with healthcare. So I started to shopping around my idea around Stanford, being a great medical school. And most people just like think I was crazy. Till I met Professor Arnie Milstein. He was invited by the then president's office of Stanford to start a clinical excellence research center. He was the professor of medicine and director of what we call CERC. And he was exactly the researcher who has put his entire career on looking at healthcare workflow and how to make patients safer, how to make clinicians' decision-making and action safer. I didn't know before I met Arnie that more than 250,000 American patients die every year out of medical error. I didn't know more than 90,000 patients die every year in America due to hospital-acquired infection, mostly through lack of good hand hygiene practice. That's three times more than the people killed on the road. These are staggering numbers. The need for safer patient care, the need for more clinician assistance to our overworked nurses and doctors is just tremendous. And once Arnie and I got together in 2012, we began this new line of research at that time was, you know, even till today, it's still fairly new is what we call ambient intelligence of using sensors. I hesitate to call them cameras because of privacy reason, we have to use other kind of modality like depth and IR, using sensors to understand human behavior like patients, clinicians, and then use that information to inform better care delivery. 
And we've worked on that for nine years now. And we've worked on that in um, ICU settings for patient mobility. We work on that in senior homes for understanding fall risk. We've worked on that in children's hospital at Stanford to assess the hand hygiene practice. We work on different healthcare scenarios. And I think that is, in my opinion, one of the most humanitarian and socially benevolent application of computer vision. It's amazing that we always hear the numbers about avoidable deaths in driving, but we don't hear so many, not as frequently, the numbers you just quoted that, you know, there's even more preventable death in healthcare system. Now, imagine I walk into a Stanford hospital. Is there any place I could go and could see one of your systems in action? Yes, except I don't wish you or your loved ones being there. I see you as we speak. We are putting more than 100 sensors and conducting research right now about patient safety and workflow. It used to be children's hospital also had sensors, but they were renovating the building, so they took down. But now it's uh, the adult hospital ICU. And should I think of it as, when you say monitor the workflow, does the system somehow have access to a description of what's supposed to happen with each patient and then somehow can monitor? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, Peter, at some point, that's the direction of this technology with the metadata from EHR, EMR, and other sensors. You can totally imagine there's that prior knowledge. Right now is much more simple. There's a couple of scenarios. One is safety, you know, patient getting out of bed, hopefully patient not falling, but if they fall, you know, detecting that those are fairly human behavior oriented. As you know, Peter, as a researcher, human behavior is extremely nuanced and complex. And this requires computer vision knowledge to do it. And, and fall is just one category of behavior. I'm actually personally more excited in aging population care at home because hmm. the world is a lot more um, you know, we, in the good news, we, we have longer lifespan. So the world is aging. And this past pandemic has also shown us um, that care at home is critical. And also in a situation like a global pandemic, a lot of elders are stuck at home. Their other illnesses like dementia or, you know, COPD or diabetic management are being mm -hmm disrupted and how do we take care of patients and elderly at home is a huge open question. We call it the dark space of healthcare because we don't know what's going on. The clinicians tell me everything clinically important happens in between visits, doctor's visits. Mm -hmm. So with this kind of technology, the ambient intelligence technology, but fundamentally respects privacy, we'll be able to have a pair of guardian angel eyes to watch in a positive way to take care of our patients and elderly. So it's not just hospital. I really hope this can go to homes. I think that would be amazing. What I really like in the whole story that you're sharing here, Pepe, is you really want to take the best possible care of your mom. And you're doing that. And in the process, you're trying to build something that can you know, benefit so many other people across the world who might encounter similar situations. And this, of course, then reminds me of your other 
big current initiative, which is the Stanford Human-Centered AI Institute, which is really focused on how AI is becoming real, not just a research thing anymore, and not just in medicine, but in so many places, AI is becoming very effective at helping solve problems, but sometimes also cause problems, obviously. And so I'm really curious, how would you describe what Stanford High Institute is about, and how did you even decide to do it? Thank you, Peter, for asking that. When I'm not doing research, which I'm very excited about, I'm working at uh, Stanford High. So Stanford High is really a recognition, and I, I believe a lot of institutions and centers in the world are recognizing that, is that AI is not only here to stay, AI is here to transform our lives and our industry and our business. There's no turning back. This technology is so horizontal and so powerful that some people call it the driving force of fourth industrial revolution or the digital revolution, whatever you call it, it is so impactful for human lives. I had a front seat view of that at Google when I did my sabbatical in 2017 and 2018 as the chief scientist of Google Cloud working with enterprise businesses. And there we see every vertical business, whether you're talking about agriculture, healthcare, financial institute, whatever you name it, is being deeply impacted by data, machine learning, AI. So that coming back, finishing my sabbatical, coming back to Stanford, that realization and that experience was so profoundly impactful to me that I started talking to my colleagues and the leadership of Stanford and really posing it as a question, what is higher education and academia's historical role in this age? What is our role in impacting humanity's future? We've always prided ourselves in educating tomorrow's leaders and workforce, but also becoming beacons of light in guiding thoughts and scholarship towards a future we want. So what is Stanford's role? And I, it, it was really obvious to us that Stanford being, um, sorry for all my Stanford pride, <laughs> Peter, at least you come from Stanford. <laughs> Stanford being one of the major centers of technology and, and AI field, we really have, we feel an outsized responsibility and opportunity to lead that thought leadership practice. So HII was really founded on that mission to better human conditions through advanced AI research, education, and policy. And one of the most important recognition actually in the past few years, I don't know if you feel the same, it's really the need to work with policy world. You know, technology is impacting human lives. And you said that in both positive and negative ways, right? Whether it's fairness, privacy, state surveillance, all these are, can be, uh, and also, of course, future of work can be severely negative to citizens and, and community. In the meantime, healthcare, transportation, you know, we're, we're also making lives better. So. It's really important to have this bilateral conversation between the technology world and the policy world. And we're lacking that. Maybe it's California is just very far from DC, but we should bridge that gap. So HAI has this dual mission, both in terms of 
technological and interdisciplinary research innovation, but also the policy engagement, policy research, policy education, so that the two important worlds of technology and policymaking can be bridged and create a forum for that. So that is what HAI's overall mission and our job is about. That's so intriguing. As you explain that, Faith, and now when I think about bringing in policy, first when I think about bringing policy into AI and research in general, I think it's what you said is, is on one hand easy to see. And, and I agree, it's very important that whenever we make decisions that affect more than just ourselves, build systems that affect more than just ourselves, well, we're a society, we're part of society, and we want to, as a society, together decide how that's going to play out. The flip side of that, some people might say, and, and it's definitely at times on my mind, is that once policy and regulation get involved, it might slow down the progression. If there is too much policy and regulation in one place, then a place that has less can make faster progress and get further. And I'm curious about your thoughts on that, because it seems like it could also go that way at some point, right? Yeah, absolutely, um, Peter. I think this is why it's so complex. I, I think anything taken to the extreme is unlikely going to be optimal, right? So guardrails and regulatory measures and owning will, without boosting the ecosystem, will probably have a, a negative impact to innovation. I want to mention two things. One is that I emphasize on the word America's ecosystem. If you look at America in the past more than half a century, it's just that both of us are immigrants. We don't see any other parts of the world that has this incredible innovative ecosystem that is at the interplay between industry, academia, and federally funded resources. And this has shifted to the negative for academia to a large extent since the AI industrialization, that the massive amount of resources from computing to data to talents are shifted to the industry. It has some positivity for sure, but the balance is tipped so much that at least those of us in academia, we worry about the brain drain, we worry about the next future generation, and we also worry about blue sky research that is so important. Everything we know from convolutional neural network to image that still had some roots in academia, mm -hmm. even though, of course, uh, Bell Labs also had a big role to play. So this is why HAI spent a bulk of 2020 helping to legislate an important bill called the National Research Cloud Task Force Bill that was passed January 1st this year. And now Biden administration had established a task force answer to Congress, what we call National Research Resource Task Force, focusing on how we can re reboot or reboost America's ecosystem in AI innovation, AI-related innovation. So from that point of view, policy is not just about regulatory. Policy is also about incentive and resource allocation. And uh, HAI truly, truly believes in that. In fact, we led that whole legislation effort together with a lot of universities and companies. I also do believe technologists and technology world need to take a 
deep look at what regulatory measures mean. I happen to be the one who believes some slowing down is globally important. For example, in the beginning of cars, seatbelt was very controversial. You know, putting on seatbelt, requiring seatbelt was a slowing down. It's slowing down of driving, but it was important for saving lives. And we, we need that kind of slowing down. And the industry I work most closely is healthcare. It's heavily, heavily regulated, you know, to the extent sometimes I feel frustrated. But if you look deep into the motivation of that regulation, it's so important. The challenge to us is that how we can continue to innovate and optimize that process so that it keeps life safe and distribution of technology fair without dampening the, the speed of innovation. But I do think it's important that we have regulations. Well, I mean, definitely regulations help us in many ways. I want to go back to the task force, actually, because I'm really curious about that. I haven't heard much about it yet. I've just seen a few announcements here and there, but you're, you're at the heart of it. So I'm really curious. I saw this node, National Artificial Intelligence Research Resource Task Force, and that comes out of the bill that you helped get passed about a half year ago. And I'm really curious, what are some of the hopes you have that this task force can achieve? When we started working on this bill, it was those data that, you know, coming out of our study that shows that academia is so strained and deprived of resource in the AI compute era. That was extremely alarming. If you look at any measure, whether it's the GPU or, or just compute necessary for AI research or where today's students and also professors are going, the talent flow, we recognize that academia is draining and also impactful research is happening more and more in the walls of for-profit companies. There's nothing wrong with them investing in their R&D, but blue sky research and research for public good continues to be really important for the global health of our economy. And, and, and one good example is Human Genome Project. In the 90s, 80s and 90s, uh, really quite a race between academia and uh, industry. And eventually it was a joint win. I remember it was President Clinton announcing human genome from his office with both the company and academia. And that really engendered so much biology research and molecular research that is important for disease treatment and drugs. Same thing for AI. So if we go down to the core of what is missing or what is painfully impoverished in today's academia, I would say compute and data are two really important key factors. At Berkeley and Stanford, I think we are very, very privileged and lucky researchers that we can apply for funding and have more or less necessary resource. But this is not true for the greater academia. And the National AI Research Resource will look deeply into if it's possible to collaborate with stakeholders to create the compute and data resource for generations of uh, AI research that is not reliant 
um, very limited industry support, you know, for the academia researchers. And also we'll focus on educating students from all over the country. So we definitely will be looking closely on how to establish that platform so that we can enable the most creative and diverse research. I really love this initiative. And one thing that's been on my mind, sometimes people write about, oh, are the smartest people still going to come to the U.S.? You know, do they like to stay at home now instead of like us? We came to U.S. because more opportunity to do something big. It seems like something like this initiative, hopefully this initiative itself could actually help a lot, right? Because I think if a student gets to choose between a PhD program in AI in another country that is like it is today, or they come to U.S. or they're already in U.S. and then stay in in U.S. as opposed to going elsewhere because they get access to very large compute resources during their PhD, it seems like an easy decision that they'll be very likely more successful with access to the additional resources and have a lot of incentive to come do or continue to stay here for their PhDs, which I think traditionally it's how it's been, right? I think the last who knows how many years people come to U.S. for more, you know, better PhD work they can do. I definitely see students, even after PhD at Stanford, leaving the U.S. to Canada or Europe or, you know, other countries to become professors because of this lack of, I mean, it's many different reasons, but lack of resource would be one reason. So we need to, we need to reverse that. <laughs> I'm definitely seeing the same thing. I think it used to be people only go back if they really had very strong personal reasons to go back. But these days it seems a lot of people feel like maybe they can do just as good work in the country they're from. It's not that big a difference anymore. And getting that difference again would definitely affect the competitiveness we can achieve here. So I'm really curious when you think about the future of AI in terms of applications, right? You've mentioned medicine as one of the the big ones. Are there others that are maybe as close to your heart or maybe at least as important in your mind as AI for medicine that you see happen in the next, I don't know, five, 10, 20 years? So this is where I feel insecure answering because I'm talking to the world's greatest roboticist. (laughs) It's closer to your world. I am extremely excited by the world of robotics. As you said that 20 years ago, the world of robotics and AI was further apart, right? The tool sets and the problems we work on. But now that with the emergence of deep learning, machine learning, reinforcement learning, as well as think as the, the maturation of computer vision, natural language processing, all this converged to a, in my opinion, very quickly going to be a watershed moment for, for robotic AI and robotic learning. What I feel extremely excited by is that that will fundamentally change the landscape of human labor. Of course, it's a very, very nuanced topic because human labor is about jobs, is about the livelihood of people. You know, even self-driving car is driving us, pun intended, into a deeper discussion of job changes of truck drivers and taxi drivers. But in the meantime, there's just so much productivity to be unleashed in human world that can make work safer, more efficient. 
and more collaborative and possibly even break the boundaries of physical distance thanks to robots. So I think the imagination that's enabled by the future of robotics, it does excite me, excite me as a researcher, and they excite me as thinking about what world we can possibly imagine with the advent of robots. It also excites me because I think, you know, Peter, you and I have a role to play to ensure this will be going to the direction we want it because it's so profound. It impacts people's work, people's dignity, people's agency that technologists like us who understand this technology deeply and are making this technology have an incredibly important role to play with the rest of the society to make sure this will go where we like it to go. I couldn't agree more, Fefe, and I'm, I'm so excited that you're also so excited about the potential of AI in robotics and that that's going to be really transformational. I expect that too in the next, you know, it's, it's starting to happen and I think it'll, it'll, a lot more will happen. Wow. We covered a lot of ground. I'm so thankful for having you on, Fefe. I'm very thankful you invited me. I always love, you know, talking to you, Peter. <laughs> Well, same here. I find it really inspirational, especially all the background stories that I didn't know about why and how you got into all the different major, major projects you're, you're leading. And of course, I really hope your mom does well. That must be top of your mind at all times from everything you, you described and hope we can catch up in person soon. Yeah, thank you so much, Peter. We are dropping new interviews every week, so subscribe to The Robot Brains on whichever platform you listen to your podcasts. Oh, and feel free to drop us a review and share our episodes with anyone you think would like to learn more about AI and the people bring it into the real world.